Welcome to the Transatlanticist Politics Podcast at the American Centrum in Hamburg. I'm your host, Andrew Sola. Today we're recording our 2023 Year in Review episode, and 2023 has been quite the year. The European Union's Copernicus program just confirmed that 2023 has been the hottest year in recorded history. It has also been a year of hot conflicts from Armenia to Sudan and from Israel to Ukraine. But 2023 should not be remembered only for negative news stories. Human beings have achieved great things this year, and I was particularly happy to see that we have discovered the cure for one horrific disease with the help of the brand new CRISPR gene editing technology. And I'm talking about sickle cell anemia, which is a dreadful, dreadful illness. Also, SpaceX and NASA have made further strides in their efforts to send human beings back to the moon, Mars, and beyond, which is something that I think all science nerds can feel happy about. As we think about these positive news stories, I'm always reminded that progress can only occur in conditions of peace. War has always been the greatest scourge of humanity. Sure, war has led to some technical innovations, but life is grim in war zones. So I hope that the coming year of 2024 will be remembered as a year of peace and progress. We will discuss our predictions for 2024 in the final episode of this year in the next week or two. But today we will look in depth at the biggest political developments in European politics in 2023. With me today to discuss all things European is our resident EU expert, Dr. Gunter Donner. Dr. Donner spent 30 years in Brussels working on a number of the issues that the European community is facing right now and has faced for many, many years. Welcome, Gunter. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So we'll look at a whole bunch of individual elections that took place in Europe in 2023. Also, we'll examine some developments that affect the EU as a whole, such as migration and support for Ukraine, which affected the outcomes of these elections. We will assess some potential outcomes of the EU Council Summit, which is taking place today. We are recording on the 15th of December, and actually the final statement was released literally minutes ago before we started recording. So we will discuss the final comments, as it were, the final communique of the EU Council Summit. Finally, we will turn to Germany and assess the mixed fortunes of the ruling coalition in Germany, the ongoing budget problems, and also the leadership of Chancellor Schultz in general. But let's start with the 2023 elections in Europe as our first topic. We saw the success of three far-right parties in Italy, Slovakia, and the Netherlands. But this was balanced by the recent defeat of a far-right government in Poland. And then the Spanish far-right party, Vox, did not meet expectations and lost nearly half of its parliamentary seats, which was quite, quite surprising for most forecasters. Many have predicted that Europe is turning to the far-right, but the picture is not so clear. Certainly, worries about immigration and the war in Ukraine are helping the far-right, but many policies of the far-right are turning voters off. For example, Vox's stance against LGBTQ people seems to have cost them dearly, 
and in Poland, the Law and Justice Party's position on abortion and their general criticism of the EU have alienated them from a large swath of Polish voters. So, Gunter, each of these countries is wildly different. What lessons are you drawing from these five elections in 2023? Well, it's a very, very interesting picture of the political landscape in development or under development in Europe. Uh, I may add one which has nothing to do with an election, but will produce one that's the collapse of the socialist Portuguese government, quite well rated until then due to a corruption scandal probably invoking, uh, involving the, the, the prime minister himself, that is still unknown, but his his inner circle was deeply involved, arrests had been made and all that. So he resigned and there will be elections in Portugal, clearly not with a socialist victory early next year. Uh, so we have difficulties. But if you look at the three countries you've just mentioned, and I will start with those, Italy gives an example of a victory of a united right. Don't forget it was Meloni, criticised for the epitome of an Italian reborn fascist, which turned out not to be true. And just she, to remind our audience, there was uh, many commentators said that Maloney would somehow be Mussolini 2.0. Yeah, well, all that was and totally nonsense. Well, well, what it says is obviously politicians, when they're speaking at home to their political base, tend to be a little bit more or much more forceful in their rhetoric. And as yes. soon as they actually get into power, suddenly their positions become much more moderate. We've had a right-wing government under Salvini, now her junior partner and completely marginalized. He was more, uh, more of, a, of an unpredictable character, a, P a Putin crony like the now late uh, Berlusconi. Berlusconi's leftover party, small as it is, is now led by the, the foreign minister Trajani, an established conservative figure with no radical symptoms discernible. Uh, Salvini is a, as himself is quite neutralised and uh, whatever he once promised to support Putin has all evaporated. Meloni has not produced herself as an opponent of the European thought, right the contrary, she is, she is in, in regular contact and productive contact with, with Macron from France and Scholz. I think Scholz has consulted her many times. So there is an exchange of ideas between a so-called socialist, in parenthesis, Scholz is no socialist. He's a realpolitiker. And that's their common denominator. She too is a realpolitiker more than a fascist. Indeed, she is no fascist. So that's Italy. Slovakia is a complete newcomer. Fico, Fico uh, is known and known with a very, very poor reputation. He once had been prime minister of the country and had the, the, the government collapsed after a huge scandal invol involving parts of his uh, numerous cronies going that far as uh, <laughs> not not showing any activity to to clarify the murder of a of, of a journalist mafia style so then the the then Fizzo government disappeared a pro european uh, replacement got into power which 
unfortunately couldn't sustain the um, the energy crisis, and so Fizzo is now back. I would have expected him to immediately join the Orban camp. We come to Orban later uh, as the great revolutionary and uh, would-be world politician to support uh, anything against Brussels, but to live on Brussels donations because Slovakia, neither Slovakia nor Hungary could live without. But he didn't. How do you... How do you explain the Slovakian electorate's support of Fico? Oh, very what, what, what 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 issues did he run on? He he ran on we use all the money we have in, in parentheses they have not they have none for our own purposes instead of giving it away and money should be given to us not to Ukraine. It's propaganda for the extremely simple. And this implicates that sooner or later a disillusionment will set in. I was amazed, however, that he did not join the 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 Orban front right from the beginning. Now at the summit, I would have expected him to do so. He has during the electoral campaign. Maybe his party got funds from Putin. You you don't you don't know. Uh, he was very much pro-Putin during the campaign, but little tangible came out of it after he uh, came into office. So maybe he is still rather careful. It's interesting how he will develop. I wouldn't trust him personally, not an inch. Well, again, but, it could be a story like Baloney, where whatever he promised during the election, his, his rhetoric yeah, but he will has not a equal his, his actions. There is a difference. The difference is, are you pro-Putin or are you against? If you are pro-Putin, you are a traitor to our cause, period. And if we can allow traitors to rule our countries, if we continue to support them with billions of our tax money, the EU will suffer. So Maloney was never pronounced pro-Putin. In fact, she has never said anything in, in his favour. Right the contrary. She visited Ukraine and all that. That's a huge difference. Orban is a clear, uh, comes under this category and should have been neutralised within the EU had that been possible. But the great failure of the EU construction is that you cannot neutralize the voting right of a country that's never been cared for before you take up nations where strange changes on the political level may may happen. This is something to learn for the future. If we now take up countries, I'm very much in favor of opening negotiations, but we have to be very, very careful with the present condition of the EU, namely that you cannot outvote a rebellious country, even one completely financed by your enemy. Right. Uh, so, Gunther, this we're, we're going to put a, a note on that and come back to it when we discuss the EU Council Summit. Mm-hmm. And, and indeed, we have to return to this idea of EU expansion. But let's let's carry on with our third right-wing victory in the elections, which is the Netherlands. Well, uh, the Netherlands, uh, I'm quite optimistic that Gert Wilders will not be able to form government because he needs a coalition. What is probably unknown to many is the Netherlands only have a a minuscule vote threshold of 0.6467%. So, in fact, next to every party running will find itself in parliament. That makes... That's a very split parliament that makes forming a government majority today quite difficult. 30 years ago, when the, the, the Netherlands was the 
pattern book country of political consensus, this was no problem whatsoever. But now it's difficult. And I, the, the last government formation took more than 240 days. So this might take much longer. And uh, I don't believe that Gert Wilders will be will find the majority in parliament to, to become prime minister because he he has glossed himself over with a bit more of conciliatory varnish, but I think his past speaks against him. And there are not that many parties uh, which could form a government with a majority, and without a minority government is bound to fail because the, the budget question will put an end to it. How do you explain Herr Wilder's success? Well, we might not call it a victory, but certainly he increased his voting percentage by a huge, huge well, amount. To him, and given the system, that with all these splits, mobile parties and fractions and whatever, it's a clear victory, but it's not majority. <laughs> and it's probably an interesting vision for the future if we were to see countries with more and more split government, more and more small parties being around. The topic was migration, immigration, abuse of the, the welfare state and shortcomings for those already resident of the Netherlands, namely the shortcoming of the housing sector. But the migration issue toppled. Don't forget, it's a premature election. The Rutte government toppled over a conflict of the uh, coalition parties, namely the Christian Democrats. Uh, Rutte wanted to stop family members of asylum seekers to be carried to, to be allowed in, in into the Netherlands. And the Christian Democrats then said, no, we cannot support this. We then finished the government coalition. Funnily enough, one of the former exponents of the Christian Democratic Party, Om Zicht, then formed his own affair and was quite successful. He was a true winner from nothing to about 20 or whatever. Seats in Parliament. So that was a very strange thing. What he did, he has already declared that he would not join a government or form a government with builders. Wait and see what happens. The, the second big party is the the Rutte party now, led by a a lady of uh, Kurdish origin but born in the Netherlands. She was quite harsh with a harsh stance on immigration about the, the type. Rutte had it. Rutte will retire. I think he's opting for other political jobs. Yeah, um, he, he was rumored to be interested in the NATO job. Indeed. But... Uh, whether or not this is working, I have no idea. But uh, uh, so Rutte, after all the, the many years he, 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 had, he, had, he had served as, a, as prime minister, and he was very successful and, and a very clever man. His predecessor, she, she, she performed quite well. But they lost a bit. They're not that strong anymore. They've ruled out a coalition with Wilders now. Uh, so and then there's the third block. Um, they they might be disappointed. They ought to be disappointed because they, they were they started with the grand revival of the climate issue instead of migration. That was uh, the left green alliance. So the the Socialist Party, Partei van de Arbeid, and the Greens. And they wanted to introduce revolutionary climate change legislation and all that. They got their regular votes, but not very much. That wasn't a success. And very little has been heard from them since. 
So clearly they won't form a coalition with Wilders. That is out of the question. So I don't see Wilders being in office. What that means is it could take a year and then they have new elections. What comes out of that then is a matter of the future. Kunter, did the Christian Democrats suffer then for their, I guess you might say, their principled Christian stand on, on not separating families seeking asylum? Well, of course. Uh, I, I mean, the 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 Omtich, uh, jumped away from that bandwagon and formed a a personal uh, new party with rather clear clear cut definitions on what to allow and what not to allow with migration, being very restrictive. I think the immigration issue has not been removed from the number one position it held during the electoral campaign, and uh, uh, it won't for the time being. It won't. Of course, the exacerbated socioeconomic reality for many, especially for the recipients of smaller income, makes that quite quite easy, easy, uh, easily understandable. So you can still w- win votes being anti-immigration. Uh, yeah, and I was going to say a number of parties that surprisingly did well. Uh, I'm thinking maybe of the Workers' Party in Norway. They made a very clear decision to basically have a much more harsh and strict mm. stance on immigration because they could see that not having a stricter, harsher stance on immigration was just going to lead to suicide, political suicide. And now that seems to be the norm. They can dress it up in different types of happy language. But even the cent, you know, center right through center through center left parties are all seeming to be adopting harsher language on immigration. But let's now uh, move from the three countries that that saw right wing victories, and let's now move to the victories for the center left countries now. So here we have Poland, which was pretty big. That just happened uh, two weeks ago. And then also further back, we have the losses of Vox, which is Spain's far-right party. So what do we learn from then sort of the other side of this coin? Yeah. We see we see far-right parties doing well, but also center parties uh, trouncing them. Well, Tusk is more of a, with German terms, more of a CDU-type conservative than of a... Tusk is the head of the the, the new Uh, Polish government. And that puts Poland apart. To start with, I could not have been happier than when I finally had Tusk in office in Poland. Poland is such an important European member state, and it had become a disgrace how the PIS party dithered on course with regard to Europe, Ukraine. They gave enormous support in the beginning, we have to admit that. Then out of a sudden, in order to win over, then the election took over, and they thought in in electoral terms, winning votes of the frustrated, they closed the borders with Ukraine, they obstructed communications with Ukraine. That was uh, of a rather mean character. What, What they had done previously in Poland to the uh, system of, of balance of power was ridiculous, uh, to, to, to put it mildly. And what they managed to do with the still quite strong Polish economy is that, and that's probably their, their merit, and that gave them voters, don't, don't forget, they, they had remained in office for years and years on end. They realised that 
no political system could survive without a functioning welfare state. And they increased the welfare state, and not only by words, as did Orban, but with money. Politically, they were more of an arch-conservative than extreme right. The PIS party was never close to fascism, rather to Franco-style mixture of Polish traditional greatness, the Catholic and, and, Church. And Catholicism, yeah. Catholicism. And there, there are and issues on abortion, just like... Arch-conservative, arch-conservative. We'll, we'll see in the United States that strict these strict positions on they, abortion they would, are suicide. They would fit in perfectly within your Repu Republican Party, I believe, even in Texas. But they are probably conservative. and Well, more. They are Catholic rather than Protestant. Anyway, the PIS party is now gone, and uh, Donald Tusk is, uh, for a change, we have a positive Donald. Um, uh, Donald Tusk isn't a newcomer. He's, an, what, he's the most experienced politician we now have in Europe. He had served as Polish prime minister. He had served many years as a top EU functionary. And he knows he knows the system inside out, and that is a privilege very he shares with very few others. And, and he started in his inaugurative speech in Parliament with a total turnaround. He stressed the importance of Poland being integrated into the Union, of the uh, ongoing massive Putin-Russian threat to all of us, not to Ukraine, to all of us. And he will support. He will support Ukraine to an hitherto unknown degree. And that is possible because Poland has increased its uh, its armed forces like no other nation in Europe. They are about to, ha to, to, to build the strongest conventional army uh, the EU, uh, EU NATO members know. So I think this is a very positive signal. It's a very positive signal for Poland, for Poland as a, as a constructive, important, and uh, geographically and strategically ideally placed partner on the Eastern Front where the days are becoming hotter with every half year this war will continue and there will be a few half years it will continue. Okay, uh, let's move on to Spain then. Oh yeah, Spain. Uh, Sanchez, during the electoral campaign, promised not to form a coalition with the extreme uh, separatist Catalan political parties, uh, not the tolerated parliamentary established Catalan nationalists, but those who openly called for rebellion and secession from the Spanish uh, statehood, which, according to the highest Spanish court, the legislation is high treason. But, uh, I mean, even pardoning these people, to me, is... A, a clear breach of what he promised his electorate before the election. So his, keeping his job was more important than keeping his promises. The Conservative Party had made gains, but not enough. As you said rightly, the Vox Party had lost votes because the new Conservative Party had taken over many of their traditional topics and already then may have shown itself to be a better administrator of these of, of these tasks than the rather small ultra-right Vox party. But given the fact that a vast majority of Spain does not support B 
being cut into pieces by Catalonia leaving the country or whatever, if the Sanchez government were to fail, Vox will benefit on the issue of this guy. They call him openly a traitor. So this will rebound. I don't think that Vox is completely finished in what I suppose for a potential. I won't give the Sanchez government much longer than, say, a year. And then the Vox, the Vox party m- might gain votes. I, I guess they will, because many think that the socialists have discredited themselves. So looking at all of these five countries, then again, Italy, Slovakia, the Netherlands, Poland, and Spain, I just think, again, it's important to emphasize that as some political commentators sort of gnash their teeth about the rise of the far right in Europe or around the world, I think as you look at each individual country, the unique internal political conflicts Mm -hmm. are way more important than broader international issues. You know, the, the specific a constellation of parties and issues in Italy is vastly different from Spain or the Netherlands. And and someone like Tusk being in, is such a well-known figure in Poland was certainly instrumental, showing that just a powerful political figure who's well-liked and well-respected can turn the tables on, on a ruling party. So I, I just think it's very difficult ever to make huge generalizations about what's going on in Europe. And I think our analysis of those five elections shows that. So earlier, Gunter, you brought up a number of issues related to the EU Council Summit, which just finished. Uh, But can you just give us in our audience a quick breakdown of what the EU Council is and how it's different from the EU Commission? Because EU bureaucracy is very complex And so we do need that explanation again. Yes. The Commission is the core of civil servants employed by the European Union for administrative purposes. So there are thousands and thousands of them or whatever. The Council is the assembly of the heads of government. 27 now. 27 now after the pullout of, of, of the United Kingdom. So they assemble and they vote whenever... Uh, issues of a strategic political nature have to be recognized by the member states. These questions, the, the spectrum ranges from annual budget questions to fundamental proceedings with taking up new member states, as we've seen it now. Uh, opening negotiations is but very, very first step of allowing a a country to become a candidate. It's not a candidate yet. That is another stage. And the average time span between the the opening of negotiations for a potential later accession and the full membership is at best 10 years. As far as a country with difficulties such as Ukraine is concerned, it may take longer. Uh, of course, and, and, much, and, much depends on the outcome of the war. So you're, you're just jumping a little bit ahead. So just to, to confirm what actually happened in this European Council summit, which ended a couple hours ago. 
Uh, oh yeah, what is so? Uh, I had a, I had a huge I had a huge laugh. Um, so the first question of of, uh, of diplomatic difficulty was the uh, uh, the question whether or not to open negotiations with Ukraine. So the first of all steps and membership accession negotiations. Uh, so yes, can 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 the Ukraine join the European Union? Yeah. Yes, that was on the brink of being formalized by opening this. And such a resolution requires unanimity within the European Council. So all the 27 states would have, no, let's put it the right way. None of these states should object. So, and now we explain what happened yesterday, and that was really funny. It was known that Orban, whether under influence of Putin or whether just to de-block more funds, billions and billions, I think almost up to 18 billions have been blocked because he of his infringements of European good behavior, corruption and all that. Hungary is the most corrupt country in Europe. So uh, it was known he will veto it and w with one objection, the whole thing would have been off the table. So what happened now was during the procedure of voting, it's not a voting that everybody's asked yes, yay or nay, but it's any objections. And now objections have to be put forth. And if none are put forth, the thing goes as passed unanimously. And during this moment, the guy had left the room for whatever purpose. Rumours have it, uh, and with my German half, I'd like to add this, that our clever Schultz, had the idea to let Auburn go for whatever, a drink or the opposite, uh, during the moment of the speaker calling for objections. In any way, Ukraine has now a free path to open negotiations as a unanimous vote of the EU member states. What did not happen, and that happened today, the second very important thing was the additional budget of some for you whatever but just before for, we go on to the before we get to the budgetary issues the point that orban made as some statements were coming out of the council meetings that basically he caved to pressure from from the 26 other leaders or whatever he said basically i can i can stop this process whenever i want to because as you noted at the start of your comments the process to become a member of the EU could take 10 years in the case mm. of Ukraine. Who knows? So he said something like, there will be dozens of opportunities for me to stop this process. Mm -hmm. So, so I mean, it's called kicking the can down the road. Uh, but also, Orban didn't want this to be perceived as a loss for him. So, you know, if Schultz, in fact, figured out this way of, of starting the process, well, that was indeed clever. Well, one should forget... One shouldn't yep. forget the 10 billion euros de-blocked for Hungary. And that happened the day before. So to me, the whole thing, I mean, let's face it, uh, the impression it leaves is that was a deal. That was a bizarre-like deal. And there is more in the offing because the second half, the budget question, he, he vetoed. And right. this will so, be put... So, 
So this is what happened today. Yeah. Um, they were trying to agree to a, would they call it an emergency budget or a special budget to uh, support well, Ukraine? This is an additional budget. It's not a budget. It had nothing to do with military aid because it's for civilian purposes, for restructuring, for whatever. And it's uh, for quite a long period of time until 27. So it's a thing that can easily wait until January or February or March. It won't help because the money that now goes to Ukraine is there. Um, it's not a question of there is no funding as you have it in, in, in the White House and in Congress now. America, the White House struggling for military funds urgently needed in Ukraine. This is not the case here. This is more of, a, of an intermediate additional budget for Ukrainian civil reconstruction and support the payment of salaries, debts, whatever. And uh, I'm sure that this will manage all the hurdles next year. Of course, other funds other funds blocked for Hungary will have to be uh, de-blocked before. This stands to reason. If you do it once, you have to do it twice and thrice. There is no running away from it. But uh, in the end, it's a deal showing that Europe isn't totally paralyzed. And that gives me hope that the complex system of the European Union we still have has a future. If it had now failed everything because of this guy, Orban, who under normal circumstances in a normal country would not be in power, uh, but elsewhere, uh, given his uh, cronyism, that such a figure, a politically despicable, could stop a process like the European unification. It shows, and I, it reminds me of what I said when Hungary joined the EU. Beware what happens there in the future. When we were 20 years ago, it was all peace, love and pizza. But out of a sudden, th there is somebody else you have to deal with. And you have to finally introduce a majority principle that works so that one or two states cannot torpedo the whole affair. If this isn't cured within the years to come, I do not see any any enlargement in the future. Right. So so some of the other issues on the enlargement agenda, it was not only the accession of Ukraine, but also Moldova. And then there were also considerations of North Macedonia, Bosnia, Herzegovina, and am I missing one? But anyway, the EU could uh, be... Well, uh, 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 Georgia. Georgia, of course. Mm -hmm. Georgia so, even got this uh, status of a Canada. Right. So you're, again, looking farther down the road here, noting that there need to be some reforms to how the European, Council, European Council works. Mm -hmm. And there was a statement in the communique at the end that notes that reforms are needed and that they will be discussed, but it's about a one-second... I'm sorry, a one-sentence a one <laughs> one um, note that, that reforms ought to happen and they will be discussed. So we'll uh, see about that. Maybe one should explain to, to, to listeners uh, not familiar with the history of how all these voting procedures had evolved in Europe. Uh, when the Maastricht Treaty in 91 was, was coined, that was the basic foundation of the European Union as we know it today. And uh, there was never talk about uh, anybody leaving. We had never thought of about voluntary... I mean, that was possible because you wouldn't chain them to, to their seats there. 
but uh, about somebody others would be happy to see the back of. Uh, so if you're talking the, about expulsion proceedings yep, are of also course, not, That's what you need. Uh, any tennis club could throw out a member uh, who, due to misbehaving constantly in, in, in the open brawl play, would harm the whole, the whole club, uh, but not the European Union. And we, with Orban, we now tolerate a beggar. He's rattling his tin. Whenever he comes to Brussels, he's rattling his tin. And now he's, he's a braggart. Now he's boasting of his achievement that he got the money he was paid for, uh, leaving the, leave, leaving the assembly hall. Uh, the whole thing, the whole thing, couldn't be more ridiculous. And it's sad, but the outcome is very positive. And let's face it, the end, as we say, the end satisfies the means, and that is probably the only way this could have been achieved. Whoever had the idea, Scholz or Macron or whoever, uh, had done something very positive for Europe even if it leaves a quite uh, a strange aftertaste. Well, let's, let's just say hypothetically that this was a great uh, strategic maneuver by Olaf Scholz, your favorite. He's uh, a clever move. man. Let's find I him. know he's a clever man. He's a clever man. And let us then move to our final subject today. Let's look at Germany. I just happened to look at the Europol statistics right before we started recording on German voter intentions, and it mm. looks very grim for the ruling coalition. As indeed. I mean, very grim. If there were elections held today, they, they are far, far, far away from being anywhere near a ruling majority. But let of me course. just go through the numbers. Yeah. So Chancellor Merkel's old party, the CDU, uh, CSU, is at 31% in first place. The far-right AFD is in second place at 22%. The SPD, Olaf Scholz's party, the Chancellor's party is at a at a miserly fourteen percent, which is you have to say is embarrassing. Uh, the Greens are at fourteen percent, which historically is you know okay for them, I suppose. And then the final member of the coalition, the current coalition, the FDP, is at five percent. So you take those three parties together now, who are the coalition government, SPD, Green, FTP, they're on a mere 33%. So they could only govern, gosh, who knows, with the CDU in an enormous coalition or something. Anyway, Gunther, how do you explain the disappointment that the German people have with the governing coalition? Mm -hmm. what's, what's going on there? It's a number of, number of issues. I mean, let's face it, what you said about the Greens, I'd like to illuminate a little closer. About March, April last year, Herr Habeck would have been easily voted uh, as the strongest party and, bec and become Chancellor. Habeck, the, the leader the, of the, the Green, Greens. The Green Party boss and Minister of the Environment of Economics. What He, he performed well in the Ukraine issue, so did uh, Frau Baerbock, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, but whatever also else, green. also green, yes. Um, uh, but whatever else they p came up with, especially in their core fields of activity, namely environmental protection, was one crap legislation after the other. Nothing could be turned into practical reality without harming a vast majority of people, costing the rank and file citizens enormous amounts of losses in s subsidiaries for for uh, mileage reimbursement with tax, higher petrol prices, 
uh, you had uh, interdictions of using your diesel car 500 yards of a certain road right in the middle through a big city. For whatever reason, nobody knows. Now it's been removed. Uh, um, no explanation given, of course. All this, the whole climate issue is on a downward path. Uh, and I regret this. I'm not an ecologist and not a climate ideologist, but as a reasonable person, I realise the enormous danger of CO2 emissions, uh, and that will cost us dearly. So what we need is te technological uh, uh, instrumentalization of of the highest quality to solve this problem instead of telling like a Prussian uh, 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 elementary school teacher the children what to do and what to leave and waving <laughs> waving his waving his cane uh, and that's exactly what the greens did and that's that has caused many especially in working class environments and that is costly for the SPD their traditional voters the greens never had a close relationship with working class people but uh, this has ruined the the image of the Green Party outside a certain a certain eco chamber where the environmental issues still continue to dominate, uh, which is very very sad. You're, you're going after the Greens quite a bit here, which is totally fine. But it it is not disappointment alone with the Greens. No, no, is leading course. to this general malaise and overall dissent dissatisfaction with the ruling it's government. It's dissatisfaction it's with also, the government. It's also, I think, depression or disappointment about the state of the German economy, high inflation, or the perception thereof. That's the thing. The perception is everything. It's the perception but also thing. the the Gunter Lastly that we've just seen half resolved but not really more like kicking the can down the road is the problem with the, the budget. Well, that is a was drama. a pie on the face for the the governing coalition that's and the a, Greens too, specifically. That's a drama that affected the government that brought it uh, to the very brink of self destruction. Just this week. Just this week. Well, it happened about a fortnight or so, four weeks ago, uh, uh, when the the uh, constitutional court ruled an ex an uh, uh, complementary legislation on a budget transferring funds, uh, we have what is probably interesting for American listeners, we have a constitutionally guaranteed limit for state debt. The, um, the, the Republicans are uh, salivating at the thought of such a, a yeah, thing. Uh, let me add... Uh, <laughs> the fiscal the, hawks the, would love the, this. The amount of indebtedness America has, I would not wish for my country here nor in Britain. But America plays a different role, we have to say. And what you still have, and that was a rare bird in, during the last years here, was economic growth. But Gunther, so the, 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 the German constitution prevents federal debt or limits, limits it to 0.35%. Indeed. And so what they did is, uh, during the COVID pandemic, they were allowed to circumvent this barrier of blocking further aid with a declared situation of an unforeseeable emergency. And that was clear because nobody had expected a COVID pandemic. But that wasn't used for this purpose. So there were some 16 billion were there. So not in cash, but in possibilities to take up further debt. 
it was just the possibility to go into debt beyond what the threshold prescribed by the constitution uh, would normally allow. And this they dedicated or rededicated to different purpose, namely to the um, Climate and Transformation Fund, which is there to, to subsidize everything to do with uh, the so-called grand ecolo ecological system of change from electronic for electric cars to whatever uh, uh, green energy, wind, green energy, wind parks, and, and whatever. And this rededication of a of an emergency uh, additional possibility of indebtedness was declared unconstitutional. Uh, the opposition uh, went addressed the court, and the court ruled that this is out of the question. And then. So just, uh, it just was a disaster for the government. Just uh, for our American listeners, just mm -hmm. to kind of show you this comparison, it would be as if one of the amendments to the U.S. Constitution limited the federal deficit, mm -hmm. which is limited now sort of by congressional rules and laws. But in Germany, it's much stronger. It's basically oh, yeah. part of the Constitution. So, yes. so rather than Congress voting on increasing the debt limit, as they're always the no U.S. Chance. is always doing this. Congress could vote on it all they wanted, but the Supreme Court would say, "Like, no, you just can't spend the money. That's, That's the law. You you need to do a constitutional change to allow to do that." And you know, in the U.S., that takes a two-thirds majority of the states and all this. The stuff. same here. So it really is a a huge barrier for the German federal government to spend money that it does not have. I, I was I was amazed that that happened. Uh, and then the reaction was even stranger because there was no reaction. They were all shocked and there was nothing. The chancellor was completely silent. That is, he's a clever man. You, you never uh, open your mouth uh, unless you're forced to. As a politician, that's very wise, and that's contrary to the behaviour of many politicians, especially of the most stupid. Scholz was very silent, and after weeks of very painful negotiations, because all the parties were there to lose face, and one thing was clear, as you said, out of the ordinary elections, spontaneous new elections were out of the question. They would be, they would be uh, finished, absolutely finished. But let's face it. If you look at the results you quoted with a CDU 31 or 32, 31. this is a this is a far cry from it's it's again compared to what they got during the uh, now our last election, but to what they used to have in former times, it's ridiculous. So without a, a one or probably two coalition partners, there will be no CDU government. So the thing is, is Herr Merz, uh, whoever wants to have the job, is he really after the job now? Or wouldn't he rather prefer Herr Scholz to finish the thing because he's uh, riding through very rough terrain? Um, what happens in 25 with the ordinary elections planned in September, we, we, it's hard to tell. But I expect a, a three-partite coalition. There are two parties they will not take part in the next government, to my reading. That is, of course, the AFD, and that'll be the Greens. Uh, so the rest will have to find together. And what happens if the FDP were to, to fall out because they don't manage the threshold? Nobody knows. Well, Gunter, you're getting into subjects of speculation in the yeah. future. So that is 
a subject we can return to in our final podcast of the year, mm-hmm. which will be looking forward to the number of elections. I think there are two really important elections coming up in 2024, both of which will be nail biters. The one in Russia will be a nail biter. I'm sure <laughs> Putin will squeak squeak through with a you know razor thin mar- margin, and a, a little election that people in the world might not be aware of coming up in the United States. So we'll discuss well, that. We need a we need a full we need a full episode to discuss that. Indeed. So that will be at the uh, we'll do that before the end of the year. So I hope everyone tunes in to our preview of 2024 where we will discuss a number of important elections and themes coming up in the new year. So Gunter Donner, thank you very much for being here. You're most welcome. Thank you, as always, for all of your insight on the complex processes of the EU and EU politics. And thanks, everyone else, for listening. Happy holidays. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.